Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to the show. I'm Major Garrett. Our special guest, DeMoris Smith, president of the National Football League Players Association. DeMoris, good to talk to you. How are you? Great to talk to you. How are you holding up? How, how has your life been in uh, a stay-at-home situation? Where are you, and uh, how are you conducting your business? I am uh, in beautiful Bethesda, Maryland, uh, stone's throw away from uh, our nation's capital uh, as the crow flies, and uh, um, I'm doing okay. I mean, we, we certainly went through um, a bit of a grind uh, in uh, January, February, March until the deal was voted upon and, and literally rolled out of uh, ratification of a 10-year CBA into the new world of sports uh, amid a pandemic. Um, but the good news is I haven't been on a plane for two weeks, and that's the longest stretch I've gone in 10 years. So there are some upsides. <laughs> exactly. And for those who don't know, a CBA is a collective bargaining agreement. Correct. And um, explain in brief strokes, I know there are a lot of details, but in sure. brief strokes from the position of the Players Association, what was achieved? Well, you know, first on the revenue side, um, we now are guaranteed no less than 48% of all of the revenue generated by our work. Um, depending on um, how the TV contracts come out, that could go up to uh, and above 48.5, which for us um, uh, is important. One, it's a, it's a very large share of a very large pie, obviously. And um, in the scheme of things, it's the largest share of any group of professional athletes in sport. So that was huge for us. Um, the the league wanted the option to go to 17 games. We have 17 regular season games, 17 regular season games. Um, that gives us another opportunity at even uh, more revenue. Um, but, you know, on the other side, um, we were able to secure pensions again for almost three generations of players for another 10 years. We improved the pensions for former players um, throughout history, bringing them up to the 2011 uh, standards for pensions, and then took care of a group of players um, who were under a prior system of needing uh, four years to vest. For those players who only had three years of vesting, we increased um, their pensions, their HRA, uh, their disability, uh, and their post-career earnings. What does vesting mean? Vesting uh, means the, the amount of games or years it takes for you to get the full benefit package uh, in the National Football League. So in our system, you have to play for two years and three games. And after that, you fully vest. So you get 
um, the maximum amount of pension, the maximum amount of 401k matching, the maximum amount of HRA, uh, the maximum amount of post-career um, healthcare. So all of those things were improved in this collective bargaining agreement. And um, those things are important to us because we, we have, our players have tremendously short careers. Um, and you know that, um, you know, a pension is something in America that used to be uh, commonplace. Almost uh, no corporation now um, provides a pension for its workers. And to be in a position to secure that for three, four generations of players for the next 10 years, especially um, now that we find ourselves um, in a, in a post-coronavirus world, uh, that ends up being a, a substantial win for the players and, and one for generations. So let's get to that, this coronavirus world. We're not in a post one. We're in the middle of the current one. And Absolutely. for the league to pay, it needs to play. Well, there's so many questions here, but let's let's start <laughs> let's start uh, at the beginning. Uh, do you sure. do you have any sense at all in your communications with the league when playing might be possible and under what conditions? You know, great question. Um, we decided not to necessarily wait for the league's response on that. Um, I formed a uh, COVID-19 task force uh, almost four weeks ago now, uh, where the goal is primarily um, not only to think about when we return to play, but uh, how do we keep our players safe um, in, a, in a system that, you know, certainly demands physical contact, you know, normally would, would demand players getting together, uh, but also to build out um, a model of what we would need to see in order to return to play under safe conditions. And that also includes addressing a, a number of really interesting, um, thorny legal issues as well as ethical issues um, that would uh, be wrapped up in, in, in coming back to work. So to answer your question, um, we haven't really had discussions with the league about coming back other than to make it clear to them that we are gonna have a process for analyzing how to keep our players safe we are going to have a strict understanding between the union and the league about the employer's obligations to keep their employees safe. Um, and lastly, um, we will at, at some point walk through what we believe we need to see or have occur in our country um, in order to ensure that our players are safe. And, and major, you know, one no small problem is how do we do that with um, what I believe is a paramount obligation of keeping our, our community and our neighborhoods safe. Right. So, so much to unpack there. Let's just talk in basic building blocks. So before there is preseason football, there is training camp. And before there is Correct. training camp, there is OTAs. There are, o right, right. offseason. Give Tell my audience what OTA stands for. Yeah, uh, organized team activities. Right. Um, a fancy word for a uh, voluntary practice uh, by players who, for the most part, all, all come and attend. Right, and let's just state the obvious. Football is not a social distancing sport. No, no, no. Up and it's close, also not a up close, right. as, up close as possible, as can be achieved in sport on a day-to-day -day basis. Yep. Even basketball has a little bit more social distancing. Football does not. Football is essentially up against each other all the time. Sure. You can't practice, sure. and it's very difficult to train for the games and social distance. Yep. 
It, it is. And the only other thing I would add to it um, is the other obvious football is not essential. Right. <laughs> so um, I know that I perhaps, you know, could break Twitter with a comment like, that. right, exactly. Um, there are millions of football fans <laughs> who are saying, yes, it is. Yeah, if, if it yeah. only psychically essential. Yes. Yeah. Perhaps learning is essential, perhaps, <laughs> you know, um, but you know, when, when we started looking at this issue, um, you know, I, I know it's obvious, but on our side of the table, football is not essential, and that's where you start. So as a result, um, OTAs or off-season practices, uh, we shouldn't assume that those are essential things that our players need to be doing um, right now. So we came up with a way of working with the league to make those practices voluntary and virtual. And working through the, the steps that players would have to um, accomplish if they have um, uh, off-season bonuses tied to their participation. So we reached a deal with the league to do that. But at its core, whether it was the beginning of the league year or off-season workouts or the draft, you have to start with a supposition that none of those three things are essential. So we can bend football to what we need to do in order to keep our players safe and our community safe. You mentioned the draft. That's Thursday, first round, virtual draft. To what degree are you involved and what equities are involved for those players who may be drafted? Um, we're involved in the sense that the minute that they become drafted, they are members of our union. Uh, so, you know, we were um, included in uh, conversations with the league early on about uh, ensuring how do we keep those players safe. And I think they made the right decision early uh, not to have the, the public event of the draft that we normally see. Players will nonetheless get drafted no matter what. Um, but, but really, I think the league did make the right call at the right time. Um, and going forward, you just, you just continue to take those steps to ensure that the players are safe and the community is safe. And, you know, going forward uh, to training camp, that is going to be a discussion that we will certainly have in the upcoming months. But a lot of it depends on how well the country um, recovers and protects itself from a, both a novel and an emerging virus. And you know this better than anyone, there is less that we know about this virus um, than we know. And so taking those steps based upon sound medical um, and scientific principles, that's what's going to govern uh, when and if we return. So for lots of the functioning parts of America, let's talk about academics. Uh, colleges are having to look at their yeah. calendar. Businesses are trying right. to look at their calendar. And it's not this week. It's what, does, what can we decide or imagine this week that will set in motion what we can do eight weeks from now. Absolutely right. And that is a great vacuum. It's a great void right now for the reason you just mentioned, because there's so much less that we know than we don't know. Yep. So if I remember the calendar correctly, and please forgive me if I get this wrong, but it's somewhat around early August the training camp begins to organize. Is that correct? Late July. Late July. Late July, early August. All right. Is that even practical now to think about in terms of planning for? Because it's not just, oh, you're here. Right. No, right. You, you have to make that right. decision weeks right. in advance to have everything prepared for the players, the coaches, the staff, and everyone else. 
Well, you know, the uh, again, um, the 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 progression, you know, choosing from another sport like a pitcher, you know, the progression that you have to look at for this would be um, we will probably still be in um, the 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 high rate of infection stage of this virus um, by the end of July. I, I think that that's almost a medical certainty unless something dramatic happens. Um, and then you start to look at the models by which something like that uh, could occur. Um, the, the, the basic questions that we would have is where is the country at that point likely to be with mass testing both for the presence of the virus and mass testing for the antibodies? Um, there will likely not be a vaccine by the end of July. So the only model that you could come up with is some sort of extreme quarantine model that, to your point, would have to start at least 14 days uh, before the players would be able to get together because you need that 14-day period um, in order to have at least two negative tests. Um, in order to at least have an understanding of who might have the disease. But yet there's another problem. There is a 25% false positive, false negative with the testing. So even with a quarantine model, you'd have to assume the likelihood of a 25% error rate. And then the question becomes, um, can you engage in a sustainable model of quarantining um, given the rate of infection, the rate of a false positive, um, and, and having another discussion about what is the overall impact on the community. So, you know, I'm thankful to have some of the best researchers in the country and the world um, working with us on this. Um, we will know more in three to four weeks than we know now, but your point is a good one. Um, there is no way to do this without projecting or going through a progression of the information that you might have, the environment that you're in, and then trying to overlay that on something called football. And I'm not sure there's any easy answers. As you've tried to work through these things, and as you know, you're going to have to work through so many other things in the future, do you consider the league your partner or your adversary? Well, um, they're certainly, uh, um, they are our partner. And um, that doesn't mean that we don't have an obligation as a union to hold them accountable for the duties um, that an employer would have for its employees. Um, you know, one of the things that we have seen in this virus is when you do look at businesses that are essential, um, you know, you don't have to go far beneath the surface to see questions or concerns about employees, I'm sorry, yeah, employees, um, and whether or not they're being served well by their employers and keeping them safe. Um, the conversations about PPE, the conversations about social distancing, uh, the conversations about the, uh, the conditions that a lot of these employees are having to work under all beg the question of whether or not the employer has done its job um, in keeping the employees safe and providing as safe a working environment as possible. Um, that's the job of a union. And I will tell you that we will hold them accountable uh, to doing this and we will insist on um, 
uh, tough answers to tough questions. Should NFL players be tested before the general public in order to put together a season and ensure it have more rapid exposure to testing so we can get this league up and going? I don't think that anyone in our community, um, our larger community, um, should suffer simply because we want football to proceed on time. Um, mass testing for the existence of the virus, uh, mass test for our first responders, mass testing for our, our people who are working and, and literally putting their lives on the line uh, in our hospitals um, um, and our paramedics, um, that comes before everything. Um, mass testing for the people who are keeping us safe from foreign adversaries. So, you know, to answer your question simply, um, I, I don't know the, what will be the, the, the availability um, or likelihood of mass testing three, four, five months from now. But we do, um, and we know that we are in a situation now where we cannot mass test uh, the people who need it. And um, for all of us who have our lives depending on people who have taken an oath to keep us safe, um, I think we have to make sure that they are taken care of first. Um, and then we have to ask questions, tough questions, about how does a sporting event fit into um, the safe practices of our country during a pandemic? Um, and whether or not um, the, the progress of a sporting event um, either jeopardizes uh, our healthcare system or jeopardizes the first responders who would nonetheless have to be there uh, to keep us safe. I mean, you, you and I have gone to games together and you and I both know that there's, you know, hundreds of police officers, firefighters, first responders at these games. Um, are we comfortable? Uh, and this is a question I think we both have to ask. Are we comfortable with those first responders being at a football game? Um, in order to keep us safe? Um, or are we more comfortable with them being where they need to be in order to keep um, our family safe? And, and to me, that's the, the, the ultimate question that we have to ask. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. And as I listen to you, Demora Smith, it sounds as if from your vantage point currently... Again, it's not based on all knowable information because there are so many things we don't know. But as I'm just listening to you work through these questions I've asked you, 
it sounds like it's hard for you to com- to imagine a scenario right now in which training camps start on time, the season starts on time, and the NFL season is in any way recognizable in timing or in conduct, meaning fans and everything else, under these under what we know currently. Well, um, I, I, what I would say is, based on what we know currently, um, we know what we need to see. And I think we know where the country needs to be in order for there to be um, a relaxation of social distancing um, and a relaxation of, um, of people traveling. Um, a lot of those things depend on the availability um, of tests um, for both the virus and the antibodies. And, you know, what almost every expert says is the necessity of public tracing in order to determine where um, an outbreak has happened and where an outbreak, where, where it may be going. Um, the one thing I will say is, you know, this country does have a history of when it is put to the test of outperforming expectations. Um, and, and that is simply something that would need to happen, I think, in order for things to proceed as normal. Um, are there ways of doing things out of the ordinary? Well, sure. There, there's thoughts of um, uh, performing some games without fans or performing games in other jurisdictions. Does that perhaps change some of the necessities that we would uh, need to see? Maybe. But um, I think it is fair to say that um, there are a lot of steps that need to be taken um, in the next few months just to ensure that our communities are safe. And I think that is going to be, uh, needs to be the first and, and utmost priority. So many questions, but let's just pick up <laughs> yeah. on the thread you left hanging there. What does a game look like? So do you imagine NFL helmets being uh, outfitted with a different kind of face shield? Does everyone wear sleeves? Are the gloves there everywhere? Are referees wearing N95 masks? Are right. the are the people who are doing the yardage markers? Is everyone along the sideline got an N95? Do we have headsets over head coaches and they've got an N95? I mean, I'm just asking what I think would be practical questions. Sure. What does well, this look the, like? The other, Yeah, the other question on top of that is all of the people that you have mentioned, um, I think, would have to be in a, a quarantine, quasi-quarantine paradigm, right? Um, because those were, would be people who have theoretically tested negative. They are coming into contact with literally hundreds of people in order to prevent a, um, um, a reignition of a hotspot. Could you risk those people returning um, to their community or returning to their families? Those are questions I don't know the answer to. And, and all of the ones that you raised are ones I don't know the answer to. But I do know that we would have to consider all of those options in order to, um, in order to, to reach a conclusion that it was safe for the players and safe for the community. And you said that there are always uh, thorny issues in uh, management labor relations. There will be some thorny ones here. The NBA recently reached an agreement with its Players Association for a 25% pay cut 
uh, I read in an article written about that that within the NFL contract with the NFL Players Association, there is no explicit language that allows the league not to play, to pay rather, players for games not played. So if the games aren't played, you still get the players that you represent get paid, if I understand it correctly. Is that true? Well, what I would say is our, our CBA is, is different, um, and I'm glad it's different. How about if I leave it that way? Um, you know, there are a number of thorny issues. Um, you know, the, we do not have an explicit force majeure um, and, what, and what is that? Uh, force majeure. You know, uh, lawyers like myself, we like to use those fancy Latin words uh, every now and then that we learned first year and then thankfully forgot. Um, force majeure is a, um, an agreement between two parties that if there is some outside force that um, caused either party to uh, be in a position to not perform on any contract, um, it excuses both parties from their obligations under the contract. So, you know, if you're delivering cattle from state to state or internationally, generally the parties have a force majeure clause that says if something happens, tidal wave, uh, act of God, um, actions by government uh, that pre prevents or thwarts performance, that it relieves both parties. Um, RCBA does not have one of those. Um, so, you know, look, I, I, you know, we're, we're lawyers for a reason. <laughs> um, we, we always uh, are, are somewhat cautious about um, what's going to happen. But um, to your point, uh, because our contract doesn't have that, um, it certainly gives the players um, an upper hand on the issue of whether they get paid. Um, I think the, the collective bargaining agreement clearly spells out what happens in the event um, of something like this. And it re requires both parties to negotiate in good faith um, on uh, adjusting the salary cap for the following year. Um, that's what it's required under our contract. Um, but, you know, look, I, I think that the real critical issues right now are, are the ones that we've discussed. The, the, the tackling the ethical issues, tackling the legal issues, tackling the, the issues of what constitutes a safe working environment um, are, are going to be critical. Um, look, I, I think one of the most interesting issues is this issue of testing, right? I mean, what happens, for example, in, in your profession if some people test uh, for the presence of an antibody for this virus, which um, scientists then conclude um, makes you immune from this virus or less likely to, um, to suffer the consequences. And some people don't test positive. Right. You get to renegotiate your contract based on your antibodies. Well, well right. <laughs> it, but the flip, it, and the flip side could be that a whole host of people who don't have the antibodies um, are not allowed to work. So what do you do with an ethical issue of creating two classes of people who, for purely genetic reasons, um, are able to avail themselves of the work and get paid, and some people are not a, a, able to avail themselves. So, you know, when we start thinking about mass testing of players, um, you know, first and foremost in, in, in you know, the, the philosophy major's mind is what ethical issues are being raised that we really need to think through um, because you might be creating a world where there are some people 
who may be genetically um, allowed to play this game? And and could you create a wor- world where some people are genetically um, prohibited from playing in this world? And if an employer decided that you had the antibody, uh, but one of your colleagues did not, and they're willing to pay you more and pay that person less, do they make that person sign a waiver um, in order to continue with the job? Is that ethical? Is that legal? Um, and, and those are issues that, um, um, you know, there are some laws out there uh, that have not been tested. There's some federal laws based on genetic testing that really have not been tested. Uh, but I think that those laws are going to be tested in this new paradigm. Um, if you engage in mass testing and, and come up with a world where an employer um, requests to know whether you have the antibody or whether your colleague doesn't. Right. That's a freight train coming our way. 100%. Like. And, and I think the, the only good news is um, we are a union that has tremendous resources. And, and I'm blessed to have a tremendous staff who, who thinks about these issues. And um, we will be going through those issues um, now as opposed to waiting until four, five, six, seven weeks from now. Right. And we began this conversation with you talking about the pie and what the collective bargaining agreement uh, provides from that pie for players. But the pie is the thing. The pie is from which everyone eats. Yes. The pie is based on television revenue. It is based on gate revenue. It is based on all sorts of other receipts none of which or very few of which exist without games. Right. Uh, that does seem to be part of this, the stickiness of all this because for the pie to exist, for the pie to be a reliable resource for owners, right? for the networks, uh, the one I work for, let's be real specific. Sure. And every other stakeholder, the games need to exist. And there are tensions already, I'm sure you are feeling, and you will continue to feel, about that quote-unquote imperative for the pie, for the country, for those uh, world-class athletes who will have a finite period of time in their lives in which this sport is something they can do. All of those. Talk to my audience a little bit about those tensions. Because they're there now, and they're only going to get tighter. Well, and, and they are tensions. Um, I, I'm, again, thankful for, you know, executive directors who came before me, people like Marvin Miller, who I was, you know, blessed enough to, to bend his ear uh, for several months before he passed away when I first took this job. And I really credit him for, for teaching me um, in a crash course how to be an executive director in a sports union. Um, he also kept asking me why I wanted to do this job and tried to talk me out of it, but that's neither here nor there. Um, but you know, people like Marvin and Ed Garvey and Gene Upshaw, uh, before me all insisted on a model for, for players getting paid that was based upon their share of revenue. Um, and that's, that's separate, um, and, and somewhat distinct from the way in which, um, um, you know, millions of Americans are paid. You know, most Americans are paid pursuant to some salary, not necessarily a share of the revenue that they generate as a result of their work. Um, I doubt, highly doubt that the workers at Google are getting 48 to 50% of the revenue from Google. Um, we can be sure know, of that. Right. And, and so, 
um, what comes from that, though, is certainly a risk that, you know, as well as your salaries increase when the pie gets bigger, is there a risk that your salaries decrease when the pie gets smaller? Yes. But that's also um, okay, right? Because I would rather our fortunes be tied um, to a fair share of the revenue generated by our work. I mean, I hate to sound like um, I'm quoting, you know, from the grapes of, of wrath, but I am. Um, <laughs> the, the, the nature of, of the struggle for those pickers um, was the struggle over what is the fair share that they are due based upon um, the labor that they are putting in. And so, um, yes, there is a tension, um, but I would much rather have that tension result from uh, the fair share of our labor. Um, and if the pie gets smaller, it, it might mean that our, our pay gets smaller. Um, but it also means that if the pie gets larger, um, it means that our, our salaries get larger. But I do like a world where we're fighting over our shares um, rather than fighting over um, um, a designated salary, if and that if, makes sense. And if I hear you correctly a world in which your players are safe, but the pie is somewhat smaller is acceptable. Yes, because um, I would much rather have that because um, there, <laughs> there's no way of negotiating a deal um, the other way, right? I mean, if, if, you, if you want to have your total amount of, of salary going up when the pie goes up, um, and, and you want all of those bells and whistles uh, that go up when revenue goes up, um, I'm not sure you are ever able in a world to really effectively negotiate a world where it won't go down if, if the share goes down. Um, you know, for almost 50 years, there's been an unbroken chain of, of salaries increasing. Um, in our world over the last 10 years, the salary cap per team grew on an average of $10 million um, per year for the last seven to eight years. Um, and, and, and certainly we know we expect the, the cap to go up next year. So um, if it goes down, um, we'll be fine. Um, you know, I, I look at all the people that you and I know who are out of work and, and basically went out of work overnight, uh, 22 million Americans um, filing for unemployment. Um, no one should be feeling sorry for NFL players when it comes to their salary. Hearing you essentially say uh, player safety is not negotiable up against greater revenue, player safety comes first. Are any of these issues that we've talked about, returning to training camp, the facilities, the proximity, the testing, are any of those strikeable issues in which the players could say, management, you've approached us with this scenario, yep, but we're not comfortable with it, and therefore we will not show up under our rights, either under the CBA or under our human rights, not to be exploited. Yeah, I, I'm not sure um, from a labor law standpoint, they would be quote unquote strikeable as much as they would be um, scenarios where players would not have to perform in an unsafe working environment. So, um, you know, if, if you were, um, for example, working in a coal mine, and um, you had a collective bargaining agreement that, that had a no strike clause, clause and a no lockout clause, that certainly doesn't mean that, that miners would have to go into a, a mine that collapsed the night before. Um, 
no employee um, uh, should be forced against his will to, to work in a completely unsafe working environment. And, and one of the reasons that I formed the task force um, in the same way that I formed the task force in concussions 10 years ago, almost 11 years ago now, um, I want the, the world's best experts advising the union on what it needs to do in order to define a safe workplace. And once that is defined, um, now we know how to take the next steps. Now we know what obligations the employer has. And, and to your point, we also know that if it fails to comply with those safe working uh, conditions, we also know when to advise our players on what to do. Uh, do the, does the Players Association care whether or not fans are in the stadiums? Um, you know, look, I, I, I care in the sense that um, um, I, I'm a fan myself um, and, and certainly want fans there. Um, if there is a scenario for us to engage in the work and it's made safer for both the players and safer for the fans, um, for them not to be there, um, I, I think that we would have to look at the issue, but we would probably reach a conclusion that if it was safer for the players and safer for the fans for them not to be there, uh, we would agree for them not to be there. The last question, the uh, Major League Baseball, uh, obviously the NBA, having to confront the reality of an abbreviated schedule. NBA on the back end, Major League Baseball on the front end. Yep. Do you contemplate an abbreviated schedule for the NFL? Uh the only thing I contemplate are the conditions that it would take for the season to start on time. Uh, uh, that's the only place that that space my brain can can stay in because you can uh, certainly know what you need and then measure how far you have come or how far you are away based upon those. So, um, you know, major, it, it's all tough questions, but it's a lot easier for me. Uh, to remain focused on what factors we think we would need in order for things to occur uh, on time and then go from there. Demora Smith, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very Always much. Always a pleasure, my friend. Have Always. a great have a great NFL draft day, and uh, please keep in touch. Will do. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, 
dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.